Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a true crime parody podcast where the crimes are fake, but the drama is real. Every week, I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. I try to be spoiler-free, but there's no guarantee. So listen at your own risk. In today's episode, I'm going to be diving into the case of one of the most notorious serial killers to ever walk the streets of London. And no, it's not Jack the Ripper. This killer makes Jack look like an amateur. Some people claim this killer is so prolific, he's been killing for centuries, from modern-day Romania all the way to the American Pacific Northwest. And if you know where to look, it's not difficult to find this killer's particular calling card on unsolved murder cases well into the 2010s. But it couldn't possibly be the same killer, right? Young women, drained of blood, but buried with rose-red lips and a flush in their cheeks. Corpses of society's most vulnerable, turning up with easily overlooked puncture marks on the side of their necks, their deaths written off by police as murder by demon, and a culprit that some claim is still alive today. That's right, today we'll be covering the Count of Killers himself, a serial killer so prolific, the legends surrounding his reign of terror have turned him into a kind of folk hero, while some scholars claim he never existed at all. Today, I'll be covering Dracula and the Virgin Murders. I'm your host, Risa P., and this is Reader, I Murdered Him. I'm not sure there's any serial killer given the same extensive academic consideration as Dracula. Scholars have considered him a figurehead of horror, embodying not just the terror of an uncaught serial killer, but the fears of every age in which he is supposed to have been active. Some scholars even have Dracula, the vampire, present in the Garden of Eden, extending his reign of terror to the beginning of time. And that should be a good indication of the kind of influence he's had on society during what we know for certain was his most active period, the 19th century in Victorian England. Now, to understand what made it possible for a killer like Dracula to hunt the streets of Victorian England, we have to understand a little bit about this period in time. From a forensic standpoint, investigations are really limited to physical trauma that's visible on the body. While the Victorian era led to a lot of advancements in biological and forensic science, there were still a lot of things we take for granted as basic today that weren't being done when bodies turned up on the street. One of these was the preservation of crime scenes. If you've been interested in the history of true crime at all, you'll know that this isn't an interest exclusive to podcasts of the 21st century. True crime has fascinated people for centuries. Even the Bible boasts a true crime accounting of the very first murder in the story of Cain and his brother Abel. And the Victorians are no different. In fact, the Victorians really took true crime and turned it into an industry, selling tickets to public executions and death masks of killers. 
So to assume any self-respecting Victorian would just walk past the scene of a grisly murder and not pause to take a look would really be underestimating the cultural obsession with death. And many of Dracula's victims were easy to stumble upon. Bodies left in back alleys or around cemeteries, found in the bowels of ships, even lying peacefully in the beds of rented rooms where no one would have suspected foul play. Most of Dracula's victims were not the beautiful virgins he's most commonly associated with in modern depictions of his crimes. And all of these bodies would have been discovered by unsuspecting people just stumbling across them. Even after a murder was reported to police, any of Dracula's victims in high-traffic public places would become a spectacle, with death-obsessed Victorians pausing their daily tasks to gawk. Or, for the more industriously-minded, taking souvenirs to sell. And while the late 19th century did begin to see the beginnings of what would become modern-day forensics and crime scene investigations, a lot of these concepts, like marking off and preserving the crime scene, documenting the body at the scene of the crime, and preserving evidence, were new. The late 19th century just saw the beginning of things like identifying footprints at the scene of the crime or taking fingerprints. And while police usually had a medical doctor or coroner investigate the body of a presumed murder victim, these examinations could take place days after the crime occurred, and in many cases, after the body had been handled or even washed by non-medical personnel. Not to mention, the tests medical examiners can currently request to look for trace amounts of chemicals in the body were relatively non-existent, and DNA was a concept that wouldn't be touched by forensic science for decades. Which meant murder investigations relied heavily on what the examiner, coroner, or officer could see with their eyes. This isn't to say that the criminal investigators of the time weren't good at their job, but they were limited to tangible evidence. And we all know how much the human brain likes to make patterns. We're natural storytellers. We like to connect things and fill in the blanks on our own. It's a common phenomenon of eyewitnesses who have seen points A and C to make up a middle that fits with the information they already have, and then testify that they know everything that happened at point B, too. Because it must have happened like that. So now we're in Victorian England, and we have a bunch of bodies. Most of the bodies that we have records of today belong to young, conventionally beautiful, unmarried white women, all drained of blood. It's not difficult to see why police at the time would have jumped on the vampire theory. It's easier than believing there's a second brutal serial killer operating in London. And this one isn't limiting himself to women of ill repute. But who exactly was this villain feasting on young waifs in the middle of the night? And was London the first city he terrorized? Or was this monster working his way across Europe before he was supposedly caught and killed? Have you tried conventional therapy only to find that it wasn't a fit? And then, did you move from in-person therapy to online therapy by video call, phone, and email, only to realize that that really wasn't for you either? Because you don't actually have any interest in working on your issues and becoming a better person. You just want to yell about all the things that inconvenienced you since last week 
while someone nods approvingly and says, your life must be so hard. Well, now you can get exactly that with Void Space. Void Space is a monthly subscription alternative to standard online talk therapy, where you never have to do personal inventories, journals, or think about other people and their feelings. Void Space has no human counselors or therapists, so it can be available to you 24-7, day or night. Just open up the Void Space app and yell about your day into the abyss. Void Space does caution users that prolonged staring into the abyss may cause abyss to stare back. Void Space, for people who are just fine. It's cheaper than Netflix. When you research Dracula today, it's hard to know which sources you can trust and which are just building on a legend. As with all historical serial killers, when there isn't much physical evidence to go on and all the victims and their families have faded into obscurity, it's easy to kind of mythologize these figures like they're campfire tales because the reality of their crimes has become so distant from the world we're living in today. So to avoid falling into that trap, I've really focused on only the surviving first-person accounts of interactions with the alleged serial killer Dracula when he came to London and shortly before. The first account we're going to look at is from Jonathan Harker. He met the killer Dracula not only in London, but in his home country of Transylvania, or modern-day Romania. And Jonathan worked with him as a solicitor, helping Dracula find a house in London, as well as coordinating the move between countries and ensuring all his affairs were in order. Not much survives about where Dracula lived originally, but going off of Harker's journals, we know that even though Count Dracula was a foreigner in London, he was part of a growing segment of England's population the impoverished gentry. While Dracula was Transylvanian nobility with a lineage that went back centuries, he no longer lived in the glittering palace of his forefathers. The Dracula castle was in ruins, its battlements broken and its windows devoid of any spark of life, a far cry from the glittering riches it must have held before. It's no wonder the Count wanted to immigrate to England, where his title might get him a line of credit and a house where he could establish himself anew as a foreign aristocrat of means. That alone may have been a good enough reason to immigrate, but there were also rumors surrounding the castle. And Dracula. While Harker doesn't go into too much detail about the folklore of the commoners, he does reference several instances when peasants of the village near the Dracula castle warn him about the Count, the wolves in the surrounding woods, and the mysterious women who live with the Count. Here is where I really wish we had more information. Obviously, we have Jonathan Harker's journal account of meeting the Count in his homeland, as well as notes and recordings of the Count's exploits in London. But not much remains of the Transylvanian people's accounts of the Count and what crimes he may have committed against his own people. For a killer as practiced as Dracula, it's difficult to believe his crimes only began when he landed in England. Which begs the question, for every English woman he attacked on the street, how many Transylvanian corpses did he leave behind in his ruined castle? 
While we have a lot of speculation, there's no documented evidence of these crimes. But we do know that Jonathan Harker came into contact with at least three women while he was in the castle. Whether these were live women or drained corpses is also a matter up for some debate. Harker's account of these women is dreamlike and hypersexualized, which may have played well to his audience in the 19th century, but for a 21st century audience, these accounts seem more like the brain rewriting a traumatic experience. In a direct quote from his journal, he writes, I seemed somehow to know her face, and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing, and at the same time, some deadly fear. Several entries later, Harker writes about his encounter with a woman outside the castle wailing for her child. While he makes no connection between these two events, it's entirely possible that what he witnessed was a mother confronting the murderer of her child, and what Harker saw in his state of possibly drugged exhaustion were the bodies of women from the village, all drained of blood. But again, there are few first-person accounts of what crimes the Count may have perpetrated in his home country against his own people. Whether these have been lost with time or suppressed because of the Count's status as a member of the ruling aristocracy, we may never know. What we do know for sure is that once the Count set foot on the shores of England, he began killing with practiced precision, even striking women in their own beds behind locked doors, leaving very little doubt about whether or not he'd done this before. Like many serial killers, the Count clearly had a type of victim that he sought out, depending on what he was looking to get. There were the victims he seemed to hit quickly and out of the blue. These are the bodies that were turning up in gutters and back alleys, drained of blood, and sending the police on a frantic search to quell yet another serial killer on the London streets. Then, there were the victims like Lucy Westenra. She's the victim most cited in first-person accounts of the Count's killing spree, most likely because she was a fair, beautiful young woman of means. But she was also an anomaly in that the Count visited her multiple times before finally draining her of her blood and leaving her for dead. Lucy Westenra was best friends with Mina Murray, who was engaged to and would later marry Jonathan Harker. And this may also be a factor in why she is the victim most frequently mentioned in accounts of Dracula's activity in London. She was a young woman in the middle class of Victorian England, meaning she was expected to get married soon and, in fact, had three suitors who had already proposed. Lucy had just recently accepted a proposal from Arthur Holmwood, but she was still on good terms with all of her suitors, and by all accounts, she was a sweet and charming young woman looking forward to getting married and setting up her own household and having children to raise alongside her best friend. But that simple and beautiful future was stolen from her by the Count when he chose her as his victim. Like I said before, the Count had two types of victims, and Lucy fell into the second category. She wasn't a victim of opportunity, but a woman he stalked with predatory intensity. He drained Lucy of her blood by degrees, 
each time making her sicker and sicker while her loved ones searched for answers about what could possibly be causing her decline, going so far as to post guards around her bedside. But even this wasn't enough to deter the Count, and Lucy eventually succumbed, dying at Dracula's hand from exsanguination. And while Lucy's death is an absolute tragedy, it's because of her that the Count was eventually stopped. Like in many murder cases, it was Mina, Lucy's best friend, who really pushes for an investigation into her death and who refuses to just sit by and let Lucy's death be just a tragedy. Mina wants Lucy's death to be for something, and that thing is catching a notorious serial killer. Mina, Jonathan, and several other friends, including the esteemed criminologist Dr. Van Helsing, are able to track down all of Dracula's hideouts in England, discovering coffins in the basement of every home. And when no place in England is safe for him, Dracula flees back to Romania, where Mina and the rest of the group confront Dracula in his castle. It's difficult to say exactly what happened during this confrontation, but what we know for sure is that Dracula was never seen again. During further investigation of the castle, the bodies of three more women were discovered in coffins under the castle, and if the villagers are to be believed, the bodies of hundreds more were lost to the wolves in the woods. Between the limitations of Victorian-era forensic examinations and the fact that Count Dracula was an aristocrat who moved relatively freely between countries, it's impossible for us to have an accurate count of how many women's deaths he may be responsible for. But all the historical sources I could find place it well above the four that we know of for certain. And if you believe the rumors and legends that circulated among the Romani people about Count Dracula... Not only is the number of murders he's responsible for well into the hundreds, but he's a monster so evil, death can't touch him. Which would make Count Dracula the most prolific serial killer across three centuries. And he still hasn't been caught. Listeners, this is episode three of Reader, I Murdered Him. And you're still here. Thank you so much for coming back. If you can't get enough of the count, you can always check out Dracula by Bram Stoker from your local library or indie bookstore. Or any other book featuring this mainstay of vampire lore. If you have some favorites you'd like to share with other listeners, head on over to the stay-at-home creative substack and share them in the new book club chat. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the free monthly newsletter where I talk about this podcast, other things I'm working on, and what books are going to be covered in upcoming episodes. I don't and never will have social media for this podcast because I value mental health over marketing. So if you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts because that's the only way other people are going to find it too. You can reach out to me at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. And if you really loved the episode today, consider becoming a listener supporter on Anchor. While I do this podcast for free, 
Any support you give allows me to spend more time on it and make it even better. All the links are in the description, and thank you again for listening. Don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. Salvis Mr. Lee.